Hello and welcome to Movie Go Round, a film discussion podcast that rotates between different themes every week on a five-week schedule. This week's theme is New to Two. Hello, everybody. My name is Brett Stewart. Joining me this evening, Nicole Davis. How are you? I'm just fine in honor of uh, the repeal of bro pro- prohibition. Prohibition <laughs> many years ago. I've already started uh, on my whiskey. So, yes, I'm ready to speak about the sting in a hopefully coherent manner. You just know that there's a frat somewhere that got told they had to stop drinking and called it prohibition. Uh, <laughs> David Luzader, how are you? I'm doing pretty good in honor of the repeal of the real prohibition. I'm wearing a tank top, my delta looking great. Uh, that's about all I got in my bro talk, so I'm going to stop talking <laughs> like this now. Well, we didn't watch Even particularly the shaved head to go with it. Yeah. Right. <laughs> you got the got the quarantine head. Uh yeah. I, uh, I don't have a particularly bro pick for us, so there's no easy segue there. But we will announce <laughs> next week's movie. Next week is Netflix Roulette. I do want to mention this is the second time that Netflix Roulette has opened the door to Prime Video. So I, I know it's called Netflix Roulette, but we're opening up to both streaming services just because of the ubiquity of Amazon. We realize that that opens the door to a lot of other movies so hopefully when we spin that wheel, uh, we'll hopefully get a bunch of cool new things. And it seems like that's been working. Our last one was already an Amazon movie. However, this one is on Netflix. You can find it on Netflix. It's called Mokalik. That is uh, spelled M-O-K-A-L-I-K. Mechanic is what that means. It's a Nigerian film. So check that out on Netflix. That is what we are going to be watching next week uh, for Netflix Roulette. But this week is new to two it's where someone gets to pick a movie that the other two have not seen before this was my pick this time around and i always struggle with this one i ask you guys about a million different movies i change my mind three times um, because i really want to find something that's exciting to show you guys and that i love and it's always hard because you guys are so versed combined that i can never find anything but uh we did watch 1973's the sting I'll read a little bit about the synopsis now, and then I'll explain about why I picked this movie. And obviously, you two have not seen it before. Uh, Following the murder of a mutual friend, aspiring con man Johnny Hooker teams up with old pro Henry Gondorf to take revenge on the ruthless crime boss responsible, Doyle Lonigan. They set about implementing an elaborate scheme, one so crafty that Lonigan won't even know he's been swindled. Uh, the reason I chose this movie is because you guys had already seen Butch Cassidy and Sundance Kid, so this is the same two leads with the same director, and I think just as good of a movie in many ways. Um, this is a film I've always really loved. I, I'm a big Paul Newman fan, um, Paul Newman playing uh, Gondorf in this movie, um, and I love Robert Redford as well, and I just I grew up with these movies. Um, I grew up loving Butch Cassidy. My parents had a big box set of Paul Newman movies that I got into like a lot younger than I feel like most people would be interested in Paul Newman movies, um, which meant like everything from this, like like The Hustler and, and the, the Sting in this case, um, just kind of hold a special place in my heart in film. And this is a critically lauded film. It has some fantastic writing, some fantastic acting. I think it is so smartly written that all the way up to the final moments of this movie, you're going to 
kind of keep guessing as to who's on whose team and what's happening and what the motivations are and and what's going to happen at the end. And all these years later, I think that holds up incredibly well. Uh, So that's why I picked The Sting. You guys had not seen it before. Had you heard of it at all? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Different responses there. Uh, David had not heard. (laughs) Yeah, but you, you, David, you've seen like Butch Cassidy. So you've seen these two on screen together before. Yes, and I've seen them on screen apart. Yeah, right. Uh, and then, Nicole, this this seemed to slip from uh, your otherwise mostly comprehensive film palette that I always have to work around. <laughs> it's, it's not... It, it's... Um, I'm a, I'm a renaissance woman when it comes to movie. I know a, a, I know a little about a lot of things. <laughs> so, I have a smattering from every decade, let's say. But this was... Uh, this was not one of them. I'm not always. It's for me. It's it's hit and miss with period pieces. Sure. Um, and this one, I was just like, yeah, no, I can skip this one. That's fine. So. Oh man! All right. Well. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's kind of it's it's like double periody in the sense that like it was it was already a period piece in 1970 about 1936, and now it's kind of interesting to watch actors in the 70s do that um we'll talk a little bit about that and how they make chicago look this is based in chicago uh let's dive into some of our discussion topics though and i think david you put a fantastic quote here at the top of our docket and i'll let you go ahead and read it and explain it because i think this is the perfect way to kick off a discussion about this movie all right well uh this is a quote from daniel egan who i believe is a cinematographer and or or possibly a a writer about film i couldn't quite verify who daniel egan was but he shows up (laughs) in the uh, wikipedia of this because he has a quote that says one key to plots about con men is that film goers want to feel they are in on the trick they don't want to know how a scheme works and they don't mind a twist or two but it's important for the story to feature clearly uh, clearly recognizable good and bad characters uh, and this is something that actually the the writer of the script, David S. Ward, uh, I believe is his name. Yes, he actually struggled kind of finding that balance and had to rewrite um, a number of times. And this is a, a movie that I, I read that quote kind of while I was near the beginning of the movie. And I kept ca- trying to keep that in mind because I was asking myself the whole time. I'm like, are these good guys? You know, I mean, they're still criminals. They're still. But then, you know, it comes to like. Well, they're criminals, but they're stealing from other criminals, you see. So it's like they're they're you know, they're the amoral ones while the other ones are the real bad guys. Yeah, and also I think that that tone of who is the good guy and who is the bad guy is is centered largely around the death of Robert Earl Jones's character at the beginning of the movie because that just immediately makes you hate anyone involved in whoever hurt that lovely man and his nice family and like so that that sets that that battle line pretty distinctly for me but you're right like they're still they're still grifters as they call themselves in this period piece uh script (laughs) which has a lot of new words i learned and uh you know you have this group of criminals who all come together uh to work to like they're gonna work together to get the mark and then they're all gonna disperse you know the Mm -hmm. the the non-gang affiliated criminals of Chicago are willing to help these other people just for fun and a little bit of money. How many are there in that room at the end? Do you think if they're spitting that, if they're splitting that 500 K even, you got to hope that each one of them is walking out of there with 10, 15 grand, hopefully. <laughs> uh, 
Probably, which would be a dang good amount of money. A lot of money, yeah. Because uh, that five five hundred thousand was worth approximately nine point two million dollars in twenty nineteen money. Yeah, watching Robert Redford gamble that away within minutes of oh, stealing yeah. it. <laughs> <laughs> at least he acknowledges he has a problem at the end of the movie. <laughs> um, yeah, so so this movie I think defies that that quote that that Daniel Egan mentions. And by the way, he seems to be a uh, most notably a critic from the Hollywood Reporter. Um, that you aren't let in. At, into every part of this scheme no. as, as the viewer. There's a pretty significant part at the end of this movie, and, and we can jump right to it if we want to, because it sets, I think, the groundwork for a lot of what we're going to talk about. Um, you don't know that they've worked with these guys to pretend to be the FBI um, to help legitimize this, uh, this con. So... Um, the guy never even know oh, what's his name Doyle Lonigan never knows that he was conned. Um, like you don't get any of that. Like you you're left out of that conversation. As far as you're concerned, it's actually the FBI who is having Robert Redford turn uh, turn in his buddy, turn in uh, Henry Godford, played by Paul Newman. Well, and I think the secondary purpose of the you know the faux FBI is to. Um is to trick Snyder, the the Joliet right. cop. Mm-hmm. Yeah, to throw him off the trail a little bit. Yeah, right. so Snyder, a character from the very beginning of this movie, it takes place in Joliet before it moves to downtown Chicago on the south side. And uh, Snyder's immediately on uh, Redford's tail for the entire movie, like relentlessly, like like almost to a, a not, not almost, most certainly to an obsessive degree while outside of his own jurisdiction. Um but this fake FBI gives him enough purpose to feel important in getting uh, getting even with what for whatever reason he's upset with uh, with Hooker's character. Well, he isn't he on Lonigan's payroll? Or no, he's oh. he's angry at Hooker because Hooker gave him a counterfeit, uh, extorted you know quote unquote bribe. Okay. So he wants. His, he wants his his legit bribe money. He doesn't want <laughs> fake bribe money. Gotcha. So he's just a crooked cop. Okay. Yes. Yeah. yeah. He wants his real two thousand um, dollars. It's it's so right. quaint to watch a period piece where they're quarreling over two three thousand dollars as because it is like so significantly more with inflation. Um, well, would love that. Which about is this also- movie. Which is also an amount that if you wrote that into a, a, a scene today where someone's extorting someone else for $2,000, $3,000, you would be like, yeah, okay, sure. Yeah. He's robbing him for $2,000. Like back then, that's an insane amount of money. Yeah, yeah. I, I love that the ultimate con here, when we look at like the history of con movies leading up to like, I don't know, Ocean's Eleven movies or something like that, and you're conning people, casinos out of billions and, and millions of dollars, and just the 500 k is going to ruin Doyle at the end of this movie. Um, it's, I don't, I can't think of any other like con man stingy type movies. I, re- I realized I just called the sting a stingy type movie, but that take place in the thirties. Um, Cause again, this takes place in 36 midst of the, the depression. Um, doesn't show you a ton of that because the people you see during the time in the movie are people that either have money already because they're crooked or are stealing money from the people who are crooked. Mm-hmm. So 
Nicole, yeah. I, I, I'm getting a vibe that you don't like that you weren't seen that part, like that you would have preferred to have been in on the FBI thing. Yeah, or at least that there was a hint somewhere that if I had been really observant, I could have picked up on. You know, like there's there are things in, say, the prestige that mm-hmm. if you're paying attention aren't necessarily going to be a complete surprise at the end. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there are certain reveals in that where if you've, if you've really been observant, uh, you can make a good guess as to what those are. But this movie doesn't give you any hints. And so it's just completely, it's a completely out of the blue that, um, that, Gondorf knows uh, that Hooker is being chased by this crooked cop. Um, we're never pri- we're never privy to that conversation, mm-hmm. and then there's the whole cheat with not knowing that the FBI isn't legitimate, and there's no hint. Nobody mentions that they've got somebody who's good at pretending to be government guys, or that they have an in with they have a i've not even like i've figured out how to take care of that end of things you know mm-hmm. not even a tiny hint it's just sort of air dropped on you at the very end yeah cuz there's there's a good twist in the movie where uh we see the robert redford's character is being followed by this character that we always see as the black gloves oh, yeah. for most of the time so you get this idea of like oh that's the person hunting him you know, he's just waiting for his chance to strike. And then, like, when, when he does, it, it totally twists on his head that he was protecting Redford the whole time. And it's like, whoa, that's like, I legitimately loved that part of the movie. I'm like, that is a great twist to this film. But like Nicole's saying, where you're pulling this thing right out at the end that, like, and here's what ties it all together. Like, we pulled one over on you, audience. It can yeah. feel a little, I don't want to say cheap, um, no, I'm going to say it, it can be a little bit <laughs> cheap from a storytelling perspective to to be like, ah, but we, we got you like, you know, you you had no idea this was coming. It's like, well, it's kind of fun to be in on it, to feel like you're part of the game, especially when you do have that that first twist of Loretta, the uh, the diner, you know, um, waitress slash owner um, who is, you know, who Redford's character Hooker has befriended and is and is you know ends up you know trying to go out with romantically and then she's the one that was set up to kill him and and that's who he's protected from there at the end and like that's a really good twist and it does a great yeah. job of explaining it and what's going on with that and then you you do get the cop thing out of the blue or rather the FBI thing at the end of the movie I think that's a fair criticism I also wonder if um I I read a lot about this movie going up to this show today and a lot of the time both in the special features and in writings of the time they talked about how mainstream and blockbuster this movie was and i understand that's the case it it was one of the highest grossing films of all time at the time um i think it deserves a little bit more credit than being lumped in with like blockbusters because it does have phenomenal acting very good writing for the most part um but i wonder if almost that line that they were straddling they you don't want to make it too complicated for i don't know like do you want do you want to 
like to insult? Do you want to feel like you're insulting the audience at the end by saying like, oh, we put this in here and you still didn't catch it? Um, I don't know. Like, do they need it to be so mainstream and so accessible if they already are in that mindset that you need to do that, that you don't want to give it away early on? I don't know. Well, I mean, I usually don't have a lot of trouble either I don't with twisty movies I either don't have much trouble following them or I have the the patience and I feel like things are coalescing enough that I will ride it out to the end and trust that it's all going to come together and get you know have a little like a little bow put on it and and be like, ah, oh, okay, you know, and all the pieces will at least be in one place for me to put it together. Mm-hmm. And this, I, I actually had some trouble following it. Like, I had trouble figuring out where they were for like the first half of the movie. You know, <laughs> are they? Because they were talking about Chicago, like it's hundreds of miles away, and they're only in Joliet. You know, or and they Which, go between for context, Chicago is and a thirty-minute, yeah, thirty-minute uh, train ride. Yeah, and I mean, it's, and they go to New York, and then is, you know, Johnny Hooker's new apartment that he gets, is that in New York? Is that in Chicago? Where is that? You know, because it's like right after their trip to New York, you see him going home to his apartment. Yeah. (laughs) So that's why I'm just like, well, then that's where his apartment must be, right? And that, but then later when he goes home to it, there's, you know, the killers are waiting for him and, so that's supposed to be in Chicago, and it's just like, wait, what? Uh, yeah, it's interesting. I, you know, so. <laughs> I, I think I think it's because it's a movie that, like, because the plot is a, is a little bit intricate and, and at times a little bit complicated, that like, it rewards you for paying attention. To have this one final thing that's like, yeah, again, it feels like they they, they wanted to pull one over, and not and like this isn't like a super strong criticism of the movie. Like, I'm not saying like, and the whole movie was ruined. It was just like, but we were part of the gang. I was one yeah. of them. You know, I knew right. I knew what was happening every step of the way. Yeah, I think that kind of damages your your in with the lead characters. You know, you want to feel like you're you're part of it to mm-hmm. really feel closer to the main characters and the you know, pulling that out at the end, it's like, oh no, no, no. You thought you were part of our gang? No. Nope. Sorry, you're yeah. an outsider. Yeah. I think we're speaking to something that, and I, I agree with you guys. And I, I think we're speaking to something that is, I mean, the oldest storytelling device around in a way that this movie attempts to circumvent at the end, which is, you know, dramatic irony. Like the reason, the reason Romeo and Juliet is so, is so heartbreaking and engaging at the end is because you know, they shouldn't be doing what they're doing and that there's no reason to do that. Right. Like, because you, the audience are privy to more knowledge than the people on the page or in this case on the screen. Um, but when you don't have that knowledge and they do, it's the other way around. I could see how it could be kind of jarring at the ending. I agree. Mm. Yeah. Now let's talk a little bit about some of our other discussion topics. Cause we did jump around a little bit to the very end of the movie. <laughs> um, the driving reason behind the whole scheme, Nicole, uh, you want to elaborate a little more on this guy? Um, well, I mean, I had, I had mixed feelings about it. Um, about this movie, just in the, in the time that we're recording, there are a lot of, you know, current events that are still very fresh and very raw. And, you know, there's a, there's huge, racial upheaval in the country. I mean, as there has always been, but it's, it's really raw 
right now. And so I was just like, eh, you know, I, I had mixed feelings about watching this movie because on the surface, it absolutely looks very white. <laughs> it's yeah. made by lots of white people, you know, lots it of is. white actors in it. There are a couple of, you know, there's like three or four African-American actors in this movie, none of whom have leading parts. Um, there's like one ancillary character who you see a lot of, but you don't learn anything about the guy who like rents them the billiard hall that they turn into the fake booking office. Um, mm -hmm. And then there's, you know, Robert Earl Jones's character, Luther at the beginning, who's on screen for about, I don't know, eight or 10 minutes, maybe total. And I mean, it's his is a vital role in the movie. And I, I, love that the whole reason that everybody gets in on the scheme and you get like 25 guys willing to, to 25 people men and women willing to participate in this scheme to trick this one guy is they're not primarily in it for the money they're in it to get retribution for the death of an african-american man mm -hmm. and i think that I think that speaks a lot to the period in which the movie was made. You know, this was made in 1973, which is, you know, with everything else going on in the country was a, a, a cultural high point anyway, in terms of African-American inclusion and filmmaking and, you know, emerging um, into the, into new markets and, uh, I don't want to. I don't want to speak out of turn here. This is just you know my impressions. It's just that I think that it's more of an indicator of when it was made. I don't know that this this movie would have been made this way now, today. I think it. I think it would have been made differently, and I'm not sure. <sighs> I'm not sure how they would approach it i would i would hope that they would include you know um african-american writers or you know director right. or more actors yeah. you know because they uh, you know hey head, heads up everybody black people existed in the 30s and yeah, they, right. they, there were you know some people had jobs and some people took care of their homes and some people took care of their homes and had jobs and some people had to earn a living on the margins that were was not necessarily completely legal because that's how they were able to support their families you know mm -hmm. and it's just i don't know where i'm going with this <laughs> I, I understand what you're saying <laughs> no, but I, I, just, I, I had mixed feelings i i liked that this was the reason behind the whole operation but i didn't like that there was only one major african-american role and it didn't last that long in the movie that's fair. And so I also felt a little like lip service. Interesting. Yeah. I, I mean, I think we're, we're talking about the, the director of a Western Butch Cassidy and the Sundance with this movie, then sandwiched in the middle of Slapshot, which is, if you're not familiar, Paul Newman hockey comedy. Um, so he got he got along with Paul Newman really well. My point is he's a very white director. <laughs> like all of all of his casting choices were aggressively white, um, from what I can tell, at least in the popular period of some of his movies. George, I'm talking about George Roy Hill. Um, I think that might play into it a little bit, unfortunately. Um, 
I do like Robert Earl Jones's character in this. I mean, if you think about him just in the context of including him, uh, yes, he is, you know, James Earl Jones's dad, um, but also was a really prolific, you know, a stage actor during the, Har- during the Harlem Renaissance. He was doing Langston Hughes and Zora Neale Hurston plays um, and got into movies in the 70s and 80s and 90s. Uh, I think it's awesome. I don't know. I really, I like his character a lot in this movie and I wish I could see more of him. Yeah. I wish I could see more of his family as well because his family is used, um, his family is used as an emotional pull later on in the movie, but you don't get enough of his wife to not to care because like his wife's character is instantly incredibly likable. Like you just love her the second she's on screen, but I would love Mm -hmm. to see more of that family and, and more of that character. And I don't know how you write that. I don't know if you write that where he's not out of the game just yet. Like maybe he, he doesn't have to die in the first 10 minutes. Cause that is what happens, right? Like they're all there for retribution because he's killed over this con. Yeah. And, and Redford, uh, Redford's or character obviously has a very strong connection to that family. Um, I think there's probably some missed opportunity to, to show uh, some of that connection, later on in the movie uh, again i don't exactly know how you know it could have been interesting to have the character of luther extend on a bit and then while they're planning this big con you know something happens because they end up getting caught and something happens to them and they decide like okay well we're going to continue on but now we're gonna you know we're gonna do it for luther and we're gonna change the focus for luther like i think there, there could have been ways to write that forward i it, it is a, a thing that i i would hope that if made today you know yeah would feature more people of color on screen and and yeah would extend maybe some of those those roles a bit uh yeah it's just uh right now it's funny because we're talking about something that is uh that is very of its time right now at a time where things are crazy it's yeah question for you guys um thinking about the context, you know, Nicole, you mentioned like, like, is it just lip service to have this one, you know, actor of color just kind of fizzle out early on in the movie and then not really have that anywhere else? Um, I'm wondering, one thing I do like about the movie is that it, I don't know, would it, would it have been, what, what would your thought have been if they had included more of the race element with Luther in regard to the 30s? Like if they had leaned heavier into the, we're going to be aggressively racist to this African-American man, because that would be timely of 1936. And unfortunately now, I, um, I don't know. Yeah, it, Cause I, it doesn't do that. Like the movie doesn't recognize his blackness at all. If, if you get what I'm saying, like he, they don't, well, I'm trying to figure out is, how to say this. There is one use of the N word, uh, in the movie, right? By, by one of his friends pretending to, the, yeah. No, no, but the uh, the lieutenant of uh, of Robert Shaw's character tells him like we you know we caught this guy. Oh, you're right, you're right. Yeah, which I was I was glad to see there was only one use of it. You know, I expected there because it was 1930s. I for some reason expected there to be more. Uh, So it, you know, that that's there you go. That's how you paint who the bad guys are. There's the they're the ones that are going to casually say. (laughs) And well, his buddy does well, it too in the in the opening scenes because when he fake robs him, he he, he drops the n word at him. Oh, yeah. I, I, I guess what I'm saying is like they they don't lean on. 
do you understand what I'm trying to say? I feel, I feel like I'm having a hard time uh, articulating it, but I think what, what I'm trying to get at is that they, they focus in on just how much all of these grifters love his character. And it has nothing to do with whether or not he's black. And you would think in a movie based in 1936, they would talk a little bit more about race in regard to their African-American friend. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, that's, I think that's, that's a, a not very realistic to not address it more directly, you know? Um, I mean, there are certainly ways to, to include more about it without having it just be, you know, hey, these white characters are saying super racist stuff to these black characters. And oh, that's going to make it more right. real and more true to the period. You know, you can have more about just like, you know, the economic disparities they live under, just addressing the fact that fewer jobs are open to him. So this is what he fell into. Um, you know, or- I, I, I would have liked a little bit more of that. I would have liked more of like the backstory of how did, how did Johnny fall in with Luther? How did he come to, to see this man as a a friend and a, a resource of knowledge and, you know, somebody to learn from, how did that, how did that come about and how, you know, what did that change in how he looked at things? I don't know. Or, or even more, more so. And, this is very, very timely, I suppose, right now, too. Um, is it easier for Lonigan to just send a goon to to his house and kill him where his family is? Because the cops aren't really going to look into it. Like, is is there a social element to that? Oh, where, oh. When, they, when they go and they kill Luther, like, they throw him out yeah. his, his bedroom window in his home. Um, family's there. I know his wife's out at church, but there's an element I think of that where would a 1936 police force put that much effort into caring about that? I don't know. No, probably, probably not. Probably not, honestly. But I don't know. Uh, yeah, it's it's iffy to try to guess how that would work with you know them going after uh you know these white scam artists as well how much you know that certainly cops are portrayed as incredibly corrupt and not really caring about you know johnny or you know any of the other grifters they encounter they're they're not treating them particularly nicely no um in any case but yeah i mean i just uh, i just wanted to make sure that we that we talked about it because it's i it was more i was <laughs> both pleasantly surprised and simultaneously disappointed in the in yeah. the movie's handling of it. And, and I think we're hyper aware of that right now. Pleasantly surprised it was there at all. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. I and, and I think we are like hyper aware to this right now because we are in the middle of yeah. a of a global uh, and an American conversation of of not i mean not even just gosh we're we're really going down the rabbit hole i didn't think we'd get to with the sting um but we are in the middle of this conversation of 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 how people of color are treated in america and and i think that that might also shine even more of a light more starkly on luther's character in this movie as we revisit it during this time 
Yeah, but I mean, yeah. it's also important to note that this is a conversation that waxes and wanes, wanes and has been going on for, you know, decades, if not centuries. And, uh, you know, one would... And we're going to solve it all right now. Okay. <laughs> Movie Go Round solves racism. Let's watch the help. Okay, no. Oh, um, God. <laughs> guys, Green Book. We just had to watch Green Book, and then we've done it. We've uh, oh, fixed yeah, it. That's yes. it. Yes. We oh fixed it. Yeah. So, but I mean, you know, this is, it's, it's a conversation that gets louder and quieter and has different focal points, but it's, it's important to have. And I would, uh, it would, it would be a wonderful world if this conversation were, you know, done or ridiculous to even have because it wasn't necessary, you know, right. um, but the reality is what it is. And uh, we're all speaking from very privileged places, but you know, I just want to, yeah. <laughs> I get what you're saying. And I, 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 I feel like yeah. I'm digging myself a hole here, but I just want to, I just think it's important to acknowledge it. And I agree. before yeah. we move on, I yeah. agree. And I also think it's, it's important to acknowledge that, that we would love to see a movie like this done differently today, that you would yeah. expect to have a much more diverse vo- uh, set of voices involved in making this movie. Um, also, and Robert that, Earl Jones and the woman playing Alma, you know, Alva or Alma, it's, it's they're like two of the best actors in the movie. I know. You know like that's what said, I mean. Like she's on, on screen. screen she and, lights it up. Yeah. So it's just, it's like, wait, 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 wait. No, don't go. Oh, he's gone already. <laughs> yeah. Just like, yeah. Yeah. I wanted more of that I guy. I wanted more of his wife. I wanted more of his, his daughter and his son and the family, and, you know, so. Yeah, I absolutely yeah. agree. I, I totally agree <laughs> where you're coming from. Um, I think this would be a very different movie today. And I can also see this getting this this movie's kind of ripe for a remake, right? Like 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 how Ocean's Eleven is a remake in the sense that like some film director who has a penchant for this movie who grew up watching it is gonna remake it with his own generation of actors. Like I could see that. They're making oh, it yeah. into a musical, which I think is horrific. Please don't oh, make yeah. it as a musical. Please. <laughs> <laughs> Hey man, they said that about Newsies, and now that's a thing you can see. I don't. I, uh, th- can you imagine the complex, like the attempted complexities of this plot in song? Like, no, stop. Actually, I don't know. It's kind of working for me. I don't know. <laughs> you got me interested. I mean, if they made Jersey Boys, they can make this. And I suppose so. <laughs> uh, who, who shines brightest, uh, Newman or Redford? And can the answer just be like an equal? ray of acting diamonds because I, th- I think they're both such wonderful actors yeah but who shines I, brightest in this movie mm-hmm. I uh Newman doesn't look like he's acting which makes me lean his direction hmm. Newman he just makes looks it like look Brad Pitt he's, it's just no Redford looks like Brad Pitt I know, I know. Looks like Paul Newman <laughs> 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 But I mean, he just makes it look effortless, and you can kind of you can kind of see Redford acting a little bit around the edges. Huh. You mean uh, Newman? No, hmm? like you can Did see Newman no. acting around the edges. No, no, you can see Robert Redford acting around. The oh, edges. I understand. All right, whereas, yeah. what would you feel in regard like, to Newman? Then? That Newman's just embodying the role is what she's saying. Yeah, I got gotcha. it's, it's effortless for him. It's he just is, you know, Henry Gondorf, and it's it's just. You know, there he is, and he's 
saying, uh, you know, he's he's saying the words and it sounds like he's coming up with them in the spur of the moment, you know? Yeah. And here's Robert Redford who wins a bunch of money and is like making, being very showy about buying a new suit and buying some flowers and putting on this big dopey grin and going and picking <laughs> up his best girl from the burlesque performance. And <laughs> yeah. Right. Promising to spend a lot of money on her, you know, and it's just, it's, it's all, you know, it's just like, oh, stop. You know, I wanted to punch him in the, <laughs> in the big dopey grin. It's yeah. Like, I, enough. Enough. I'll agree. There's a couple of times where you can really feel Redford's acting. Like there's a point, uh, the point when he goes to go talk to uh, Lonigan on the train and Lonigan like throws him up against the wall and then he falls out on the ground. He's like doing that. He's doing acting heavy breathing. Uh, right. Yeah. You're totally right about that. <laughs> where like to me, that was like the, the most obvious, which uh, mm-hmm. it's funny because Nicole, the stuff you're saying, like I totally get that now when I was watching it, I'm, I almost felt like Newman, the, what you're saying contextualize it because I felt like well okay Newman's just for me was just like well he's just showing up and he's just doing his lines but what you're saying is like oh wait yeah no I guess that's exactly what he's doing and it really fits what his character is yeah I mean he's got yeah. he's got 12 years on on uh, Redford um, he had been in movies for over a decade prior to even this movie so I think there's there's yeah. some veteran I mean, status there Oh, we, oh my yeah. God! He was yeah. one of the most he's charming been people. Very naturalistic. Yeah, and I and I think for this particular role and the way it was written, he's he was always one of the most charming and and witty actors ever. And I think to have a oh, character yeah. like his and that stayed such. Oh, absolutely, <laughs> and and to and to just my, one of my favorite scenes in the movie is when he just effortless effortlessly slips from the the gatekeeper of of this entire operation this big con uh into this drunken rich obnoxious man um when he comes into the the car in between chicago and new york uh on the train to originally frustrate lonigan to bait lonigan to want to take him down later on when they do the big con and he just stumbles into that car and plays lonigan the pieces in the game of cards and Newman is so good in that scene. He just completely changes his demeanor in the most natural way to upset this man. And it's great. You owe me 15 grand, pal. Must have left my wallet in my room. Don't hand me into that crap. When you come to a game like this, you bring your money. How do I know you won't take a powder? No, 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 no. no All right, I'll tell you what I'll do. Yeah. You've convinced me. I was coming in here thinking eventually, like, originally, like, it's going to be Redford because he's just so (laughs) dang charming. But as we talked about, I'm like, no, man, Newman just, Newman just is. And he doesn't have the pencil stash. Newman's got the slick pencil stash. Yeah, Newman does have that. I think that might be what have been distracting me the whole time. Like, <laughs> that's not on the salad dressing bottle. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I... I don't know. Gosh. I mean, like, kudos to Ray Walston. 
for his supporting the 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 character actors in the supporting cast are just amazing i i wanted Mm -hmm. more of the guy who uh the the small time criminal who like has a big mustache but wears a fake little goatee also on top of it at the The one who's like i don't i only drink on the weekends i'm like give me this guy he only drinks on the weekends and he does (laughs) british aristocrat (laughs) yes he always he's always uh hitting the bottom of his mustache with his finger and I, I think that's kind of one of the reasons I love this movie because you always see organized crime or con jobs of some sort as as a much more rough and tumble game in movies than it is appeared to be in this movie where everything is like you know as as you said early on in the in the show like they're they're these unorganized you know crime dudes <laughs> the that are not part of any sort of gang or anything like that. And as less a result, organized crime. Le- yeah. Le- it's less organized crime, but they, but they also all hang out in the same bar and have a roster that they can be recruited from. Yeah, and that's one of my roster. favorite scenes of the movie. Give me the sheet. It's like everybody, yeah, everybody like checks in when they get into town. Like, you, you know, you have any crime you need done. I, I can help with that. And I love that. There's like, like yeah, they're looking like, is- they're looking through it. Like our hiring. Is this a where Deadpool rabbit. got the idea? Right? <laughs> yeah, like they're like they're looking through this list like they're hiring a taskmaster. Hire. Yeah, and then and then they're like he's like, "Oh yeah, these two will be great for you. They just came in from New Orleans and they're top-notch for this job." Um and they interview them. <laughs> they go through an interview process. And all, I like, love it. Yeah. The only way to keep a secret uh between two people is if one of them is dead, right? Now you have like a room full of people who are in on this con and like that in a realistic world, that's going to get back to Lonigan, But like in this world, it's like, no, nah, they're all going to keep that secret to their grave because they had a good time and made a little bit of money. Oh, I, I love how quaint the whole right. concept is that we can run a con because we, right, <laughs> because we happen to get information three minutes before you uh, because that's so that's such an archaic idea now. <laughs> like this con would not work. Um but because you have those telegraphs that relay the results of these races back and Lonigan doesn't have any sort of immediate way to see which horse won, he can't exactly pull up sports center on his phone. Uh, you can make this work. And I, there's something there's, there's that part of the period piece. I really appreciate and enjoy. Yeah. Well, and it's like, they have a playbook, you know, they, have, this is the wire con and the, right. they've passed posting and, you know, there are names for each of the things. It's it's like there's a little how-to book somewhere that they're given as like a baby con artist when they start out and they have to <laughs> learn all the rules. And this is this is how you find your mark. And this is these are the do's and don'ts. And, you know, there's this whole sort of underground society built in. It's like a it's like a super gentle, almost a sweet John Wicky kind of world. Right. You know? <laughs> is it murder? Is it made Much more gentle? Murder, yes. <laughs> I, one thing I do like is that sometimes you see a period piece and um, the the period-specific dialogue doesn't feel quite as natural as it does in this movie. Like when Robert Redford is telling people that everything's going to be Jake instead of everything's going to be cool. Like, I buy that. Um, in a lesser movie with lesser actors, I might not. I, I do feel that this movie is bolstered by a strong enough script to harness those those 1930s quirks. Like the fact that he looks when he's faking to be upset by the FBI guy, the fake FBI guy. And he turns to him and says, you're a real stinker, mister. And I buy it. <laughs> it's like, 
Yeah. I didn't I, quite. <laughs> I don't know if it's I don't know if it's a testament to the acting or the or the script, but like it these and I know it's I know this is like like my 92-year-old grandfather uses some of this slang still. Like he grew up with some of the slang. Like I will hear him <laughs> say these types of things and they run with it pretty well. I think what helps is that it's peppered in. It's not that thing that sometimes happens with period pieces where it's like, ah, this is a slang that was used and we're going to make it every other word. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> um, do you guys think that a concern when they were casting this film was that Newman uh, and Redford were going to be way too chummy with one another, that they were already had a strong history as, as, a dynamic duo in acting. Um, they liked each other a lot and they were worried that in order for this movie to, to sell you, you need to still kind of feel like one might get one over the other. And we're led to believe that until we understand that the FBI sting is fake. Uh, do you, did you guys feel like they're way too chummy? Like you're not buying that this could be something that goes awry. Hmm. Uh, yeah. I don't know. I, 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 <sighs> I never felt like like Gondorf was going to betray Johnny for any reason. There, he's not really given any reason to. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you know, he's not tempted by anything on the outside to maybe turn him over, or um, you know, he's not fed any disinformation about him that makes him dislike him more or anything. You, but you. I I bought that Johnny might not be completely loyal to him. You know, they've got reasons to work together, but he's like he feels like he's not getting, you know, Johnny feels like he's not getting information fast enough and he's not learning enough and he's not learning the big con and you know, this that and the next thing. And it it was enough that I bought it when, you know, the the quote unquote FBI um told him to either sell out Henry or, you know, that Alma would be going down with him. Um, so, you know, it, it's, I, I, I bought that. I bought that he, that he didn't, he wasn't chummy enough with Henry to betray mm-hmm. Alma for him. Yeah. I, 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 I believed that I did not buy, uh, uh, Newman pulling the gun on him at the end. Yeah. That felt that to me as soon as that happened, I was like, "Oh, okay, so this is part of the con." Like for yeah. me, that was when Gondorf pulled the gun on him. Like because we never got up until then, we didn't get a hint that Gondorf was a killer. We we felt like Gondorf uh, liked Hooker because he was sort of this like young up and coming. Boy, you have to be careful when you say that. He liked Hooker. Make sure it doesn't sound like anything else. Uh, anyway. He take, feels like he's taking him under his wing, and like you know, there's this mutual respect with Luther and all that. So for him to just, I could not believe at the end that he would just pull a gun and shoot him in the back. That did not yeah. feel at all in line with the character and with their dynamic. There's a little bit of distrust on the um, on Henry's side. I mean, there's the time where uh, what is the cop's name from Juliet that's chasing? Snyder. Snyder shows up at their their place of business while they're in the back room uh, planning their plot and um, and gets promptly sent away. But the uh, what is her name starts with a B. This is great podcasting. Yes. Billy. (laughs) Billy comes and whispers in 
Henry's ear. And and he goes around the table. And he's like, oh, yeah, no one's been handing, handing out fake money, have they? Um, he knows, you know. So, like, there, I, there, that gives me a tinge of distrust there. Like, he still knows that that there's something that that Redford's character is not telling him. Uh, distrust, yes, but I, I, again, I didn't. It was just the whole pulling the gun to shoot him thing. Just yeah, I totally me. agree. I think part of that is like, I think it works in the context of the movie because we, as the as the viewer, might not believe that, but Doyle sure does and <laughs> gets out of there quick. And I think that's all that matters at the end of this movie is that Lonigan believes that this was a FBI sting, that that 500K is gone, that no one conned him, and that if someone had conned them, they're locked up now. Like, um, again, antiquated in the sense that you could Google that person now um, to figure out what happened to them. But in the sense of this movie, as soon as he runs on out of that fake, you know, uh, bookie bar or whatever, it's story's over for him. He doesn't know what happens to any of those guys ever again. Mm-hmm. So he might believe that he would shoot him. I, I guess is what I'm getting at. Yeah, but yeah. I, we weren't seeing the movie from his perspective, though. We're seeing the movie from the perspective of these crooks, right? Uh, so Redford's role almost went to Jack Nicholson, and Jack Nicholson actually said yeah. it was too mainstream for him. Um, and this was the only movie Redford has ever received an uh, an acting Oscar nomination for. Um, how do we feel about Jack Nicholson in this role? <laughs> Uh, <laughs> too smarmy i think he would yeah. have been too smarmy i agree he wouldn't have been likable enough yeah agreed so uh, another casting decision that we can talk about as well is that originally uh henry gondorf was supposed to be a totally different character he was supposed to be this kind yeah. of obtuse heavy set like not at all charming and and witty but this kind of this more not I was I was trying to say like this this figure over which Hooker could actually learn something um, which I know he still does from Gondorf but it's supposed to be a totally different character originally and then they decided that oh Newman was so good for this role and it's all the only role he wanted when he read the script that they ended up rewriting the movie around that would you have liked a movie that has less of the Gondorf character and the part of the Gondorf character we see is a more like obtuse over the top, less likable version of the character. Well, I mean, there's a, there's a sequel to this. I can't Jackie Gleason (laughs) as the lead of, of Fargo Gondorf. Uh, Yes. They changed the names because it's so bad. Cooker. (laughs) Yeah. But I mean, is that is is that more of like who the character is supposed to be? Is like more of a Jackie Gleason type, more abrasive, more uh, less uh, physically attractive, <laughs> let's say. Right, and without those piercing baby um, blues, which rival even Daniel Craig's. <laughs> agreed, agreed. But note, I didn't bring it up. Um, <laughs> so. <laughs> Yeah, it would have been a much different because the movie would have then been more focused on the hooker character, right? It would have been a much, Mm -hmm. which it still fairly is, but we also get a lot more of the Gondorf character and more scenes of them probably than we would have. It would have been a much different movie, uh, to which point I think the dynamic between these two is so key. Not that Redford couldn't have 
carried more of this movie, but I think it maybe wouldn't have be wouldn't be remembered in the same way if Paul Newman wasn't uh, you know wasn't a two hander. Yeah, I agree. I also think that that financially was one of the reasons this was so successful because you are getting just several year, four years later the return of the you know Butch Cassidy and Sundance Kid duo. So I think that had to have played a part as well. Um, Robert Shaw's in this movie with an actual limp because he had hurt himself playing sports before filming and then was <laughs> limping when they started filming and they just decided to make it a character thing. Um, mm-hmm. Nicole, you put in the docket, it's definitely not his best work. So I assume you're just referring to his all-time greatest character, Quint and Jaws. Well, no, not just that. I mean, like a year later, he was in the taking of Pelham 123 and he's fantastic mm-hmm. in it. Um, and he was, you know, in a man for all seasons and, you know, he's a seasoned stage and screen actor. Um, but I mean, this is just, you know, his primary character traits are being angry and having a stick up his butt. Yeah. (laughs) There's just not a lot of, there's not a lot of character there. It's, there's emotion, but, but you don't know anything about him as a person. Right. Yeah, and he also like insisted, I guess, uh, that he was going to have top billing along with Newman and uh, Redford, which apparently some claim would have cost him a Best Supporting Actor nomination. But at the, uh, uh, again, I agree with Nicole that it's like I don't think he's doing enough here to have warranted that. Yeah, I mean, he he was also a he was a Bond villain at one point, or like a Bond side villain. I don't know if he was the main villain in From Russia with Love. I can't remember. Oh. I think he would have been a great Bond oh. girl as well for just <laughs> <laughs> I, I just he's when I see his face, I just think of Quentin Jaws. Like that's the that's that is the role I associate with him most directly. Oh, I mean he's brilliant in that role when he, you mm-hmm. know, was able to pull himself together enough to be on camera. You know, <laughs> right. He unfortunately did it he had a serious alcohol problem and that I think contributed to his, his early death. He died at like fifty 51 in uh, the late 70s um but yeah i mean you know he's he's he had many brilliant acting moments and none of them are in this movie yeah, yeah. I, no, I he's meant to just be an incredibly dislikable you know 2d well, it bad guy in that in being dislikable oh certainly. for sure um a lot of work went into making this movie reminiscent of the 1930s, not just in the plot, but in the score, the color palette, and some of the edits and storytelling devices. Uh, this was... Uh, Costumes. Uh, yes. Yeah. David, do you want to talk a little bit more about this? Uh, yeah. So they, like the, you know, the film opens with the 1930s uh, Universal logo. Um, right. And then, and then just kind of like they, you know, a lot of the way that it was edited, they used a lot of like the editing techniques from the thirties, like the way that they would transition from scene to scene. And, you know, they made a really big point of like, yeah, but the costumes were going to try to make very authentic. Like they were trying not to just like make a, a period piece, um, but also to really invoke the feeling of the 1930s, which when this movie came out, you know, was 40 years ago. So you would have people in the audience who were alive during that time. You know, so they it, like for us now watching, it's like, oh, yeah, they're making a, a movie set, you know, 40 years in the past. But I'm sure for people watching uh, for a fair number of them, it was like they were trying to transport them back in a way to that time. Yeah. 
Well, like now it's what it's like watching when someone tries to recreate 1980, you know? <laughs> right. Yeah. And it's, yeah, I, I saw a couple of years ago, a Linklater movie, Everybody Wants Some, which is set in 1980 and it's, you know, college. And is that the Dazed and Confused months. spiritual sequel? Yeah. Yeah, pretty much. And it's just like, oh God, just the, the tube socks and the haircuts alone bring me back. <laughs> uh, but <laughs> So it's, yeah, um, so yeah, I, I understand how the how much immediacy this would have to some of the audience, which is mm-hmm. funny because so so the majority of the score, including that iconic you know entertainer riff, all that ragtag music is is Scott Joplin's, who is you know considered the yeah. the king of ragtag uh, or uh, ragtime, and it's not period appropriate because at that point in the thirties, no, 19- it had. Exactly. At that point in the 30s, it had long fallen out of fashion. Um, so I actually find that kind of funny because like it it works in the movie, in my opinion, because it it gives it that kind of wink and a nod con con artist type movie in the same way that like it has a storybook page flipping editing between transitions. Um, and also it made ragtime chart on the billboard charts in 1973, which I just delights me i think that's hilarious um but it, i just find that funny like it's technically not very appropriate but it works no it's very weird that it's this movie about the mid-1930s and there's no jazz in it anywhere right um i i think that actually probably dials back to our previous conversation that this Especially is a very white movie. <laughs> yeah. yeah 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 that that's a very good point well, um very white movie but it's also worth pointing out that you know scott joplin african-american man <laughs> yes. Yeah. Oh, oh my gosh. Absolutely. Um, but but you're right. What I mean by that is is the exclusion of particularly any sort of of blues in the 1930s. At which point yeah. you would start seeing a northern you know transition from Delta blues to the very beginnings of what would turn into like iconic Chicago blues um, was happening at this time. We've got yeah. Brett talking about Nick, so Nicole and I are just going to sit <laughs> yeah. back. Podcast. <laughs> Let's talk about the northern so who trajectory been popular of popular in Chicago in the 30s. <laughs> yeah, oh my gosh, I won't get you guys into it. Um, so <laughs> let's talk a little bit about Chicago. Actually, we're going to talk about Chicago. We're going to go back into Chicago here. Um, I do think the <laughs> sets are really beautifully done. I think that the 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 streets and particularly when they film around the L, um, there's some great scenes where I was watching with subtitles and it just starts getting really loud all of a sudden. It particularly by the the indoor merry-go-round um because the l is going over and they're filming while the l is going over and um there's actually in the subtitles it says like l train passing um it is that loud <laughs> uh where is that supposed to be is it supposed to be like navy pier or it's supposed something? to be south side of chicago the merry-go-round I, yeah it was supposed to be at like harlem and western or something like that um they say a cross street in the movie I can't remember what, but uh, one thing I did love is anecdotally the 1970s L made to look like the 1930s L still unfortunately looks more or less like the 2020 L. <laughs> and and if there's in one places, thing, yeah, if there's one thing okay-ish about a pandemic, it's that I haven't had to get on that thing in three months. So, uh, <laughs> but I always find that funny when I see movies that have the L in them. Like another one is Planes and Trains, like the the scene in which. They, they get off the L together at the end of planes and trains. That's the L stop by my work. And it just looks identical 
to the early 80s or uh, whenever that movie came out. Uh, see, but, I always think of the Blues Brothers where the, the L train goes by and he's like, how often does this happen? He's like, so often you won't even notice it. <laughs> <laughs> and you know what? It's true because there's one literally on the true. opposite side of this window. Yeah. Uh, no, I, I used to live parallel to an L track when I went to college. I was There was one dorm I lived in that was very close to it. And after a while, you just tune it out. You do. Uh, the Chicago mayor at the time, however, uh, did not want any films in Chicago uh, that depicted uh, Chicago negatively. He only allowed them to film there for three days. Yeah. This being Richard I, Daly, the first. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, geez. Well, because probably, you know, <laughs> the Chicago, like Chicago kind of has become a little bit synonymous with organized crime and especially with period pieces, you know, they, that's yeah. the mobsters and the gangsters. So, I, I understand. Not that clean reputation. Oh, I was just no, about to say, God forbid, Richard Daly gets involved with organized crime. Uh, right, right, but he didn't want anybody <laughs> knowing that at the time. You see, so uh, sure. <laughs> For context, uh, Richard Daly, very uh, polarizing figure in our in our city's history. Um, his entire, you know, staff at one point or another was charged with corruption and. Um, actually ended up becoming kind of a family dynasty here in the city because his son was then mayor and then his that son's brother was almost mayor last year so uh they they're still around and they're still very prevalent in the city uh do we have any other discussion topics yes we do we have one more uh (laughs) this won a ton of academy awards um beating out in particular for best picture it won best picture beating out and this also what a year the exorcist american graffiti uh, a touch of class and cries and whispers. Uh, are they, are one of these a better movie? Like let's let's rehash nineteen seventy four Oscars right now and decide <laughs> who should have won and if this was justified. I think it's pretty darn good. The Exorcist is really good though. Yeah, that's the only other movie on this list that I I've seen in recent enough memory to be able to comment on. And Exorcist, yeah, is I haven't good. seen a touch of class. Cries and whispers is a Bergman movie. That's mm-hmm has a very good reputation. I have not seen it. American Graffiti is is a good movie. It's is it a fine. great movie though? I don't think it is. It's 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 a very good, you know, one night in the life of it's a slice of Americana kind of movies. Yeah. It's a little exactly. it's a nice little piece of Americana. But The Exorcist is like what is in my opinion, one of the best movies ever made. Yeah, it's I agree. period. It's atmospheric. <laughs> it is well acted. It is well shot. Uh, the, mm-hmm. the the makeup person that worked on Max von Sydow was just dead on. Uh, <laughs> yes, it's a great movie. Well, I, I think, yeah, I think I got to agree that I, 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 for me personally, Exorcist is probably above this, and I and I very much enjoyed this, but Exorcist is just so good. But so does this have like that? that spotlighty quality of like all the right actors and the right script to make the right people feel good when they're voting for the Oscars that even if something like the exorcist is a better movie, this is going to win. Oh, sure. I mean, the exorcist was really controversial in its time and it was, you know, a lot of vulgarity in it and, and blasphemy and, you know, uh, young, young, you know, tween slash teen doing some really hideous things. Um, yeah. yeah. So uh, they they probably were just like, oh no, that's much too 
it's much too vulgar to give it awards. You know, it was this was I think uh, the way we were was a big contender for a bunch of categories as well. Um, which is also Robert Redford. Um, but I mean, yeah, the, this. I wouldn't have given this best picture or best director in that year. You know, it was up for best original screenplay. The Exorcist was not an original screenplay. So, you know, I, I don't have any qualms with that quite, but um, I don't, yeah. It's <laughs> I, I will say that, that in the, in the scheme of 1970s, it's a very good movie. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, in in the scheme of 1970s, uh, Robert Redford, if this got him an Oscar nomination, how did all the President's Men three years later not? Or three I w- days of the Condor. Three, I, you're right. Like I, w- I would have brought all the President's Men here as well had had one of you not seen it or both of you maybe. I don't know. I assume one of you has seen it. No, I have. Okay, yeah. Um, but that's also just because. I like journalism movies, uh, but yeah, I mean, where's the good guys to, to round <laughs> out, to guys? round out our discussion. Um, yes. Y- yes. It, it, it's a, it's a classic movie. I think most in the sense of who acted in it and the time in which it came out, how successful and popular it was. Um, it's a really fun script. Maybe it's, I, I think it certainly has some missteps, as we've talked about, um, but it's always been a fun escapism movie for me, um, especially having not seen it in like a decade because I, I just didn't really remember some of the beats. And I think you kind of need that with this movie. Otherwise, it'll feel too formulaic if you already know what's going to happen. Like you need some some separation between your viewings. So that's my thought. Yeah. Uh, closing mean- out, I want to take over to each of you having seen it for the first time. Uh, Nicole. Um, it's a, it's a very good movie. I, I wouldn't hesitate. You know, if somebody were like, I was thinking of watching the sting, what do you think? I'd say, sure. You know, go for it. <laughs> the, like I said, I, the character actors in the secondary roles are fantastic. I love Ray Walston in this movie. I love, oh, I can't remember his name. The actor playing twist, the guy with the, the lush gray and black mustache. Yes. Um, uh, the Eileen Brennan. Uh, playing the madam and Henry's possibly girlfriend, um, you know, is just again. That's another one where it's she's effortless, but it it in her case, I think it's a little too laconic. Um, but mostly, she comes off as just very relaxed and assured person. You know, she knows her place in the world and she knows what she's doing. And most of the other side characters are like that. And it's, it's a really good act- actors movie. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it's, I'm, I'm glad we watched it. I'm glad I saw it. And it was good. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And, I, and, I, and again, I just to circle all the way back around. I, I am glad that especially in a time like now, we hopefully didn't do such a disservice to trying to understand the the racial implications of such a white movie, which it absolutely is because again, we are all white. So we are, yeah. <laughs> we are not the right people to be talking about it, but I think it is really important to recognize that. So I appreciate you bringing that up. Um, Cause I think that is important. And I think that'll hopefully be really exciting next week to see a movie from a black director, um, which we haven't had in a little bit. So that'll be wonderful. Uh, David, what do you think about uh, having now seen this? 
I thought that this was uh, this was very enjoyable. I, I liked this very much. I think that uh, you know I, people will know before watching it whether or not it's a movie for them. Um, I think if, you know just even looking at the cast and looking at the story, like you'll know if this is your kind of movie. And uh, it's it's very enjoyable. Your dad's probably seen it, so if you want to have something to <laughs> talk to you about, um, watch the Sting. Are Redford are, are Redford and Newman movies just the dad rock of? of movie genres. Yes. Like your dad likes the Beatles and Led Zeppelin and watches Butch Cassidy. <laughs> I don't know. Yep. All righty. Well, next week we're watching Mocha Leak. Be sure to check that out on Netflix. It is a Nigerian film again on Netflix for Netflix yeah. roulette. Comedy uh, at, or drama, drama, comedy, comedy biographical drama, drama is how Netflix classifies it. Um, uh, on, so Netflix, on the roulette site, it classed it as, as a comedy. So. Same on Wikipedia. Oh, probably a comedy then. Oh man, I'm going to struggle with these names. I'm going to try my best <laughs> next week, guys. Please know I really do. All righty. Uh, Nicole, where can people find you online? Uh, you can find me on letterboxd at Nicole underscore Davis. And what about you, David? You can find me on Twitter under the username Davluz. That is D-A-V-L-U-Z. By the time this is out, my new podcast, Have Me One More Time, is out. So please check that out. Absolutely. And there's, David, I, I think there's two places you can subscribe to said podcast. To, uh, yeah. Oh, yes. You can, <laughs> uh, you can subscribe to it by itself, <laughs> or you can subscribe, subscribe. If you're the subscribed to the Frog Pants Mega Feed, you will be getting it there. But please also subscribe to it by itself. <laughs> Yeah, please subscribe to itself so David gets the numbers, but I also just wanted to toot David's horn on the fact that it is on the Frog Pants Mega Feed. Yes, yes. And uh, it'll only be on there for a year, so please do subscribe to it on its own so when the year is up, it doesn't just suddenly disappear off your podcatcher. Absolutely. Please do that. All right. You can find me on Twitter at I am Brett Stewart. You can email the show hi hi at mgrpodcast.com. We would love to hear from you, and we will see you next week with Netflix Roulette. Remember that Sting experience, how good you felt? Now, The Sting, winner of seven Academy Awards, including Best Picture, is back. Chicago was the place to be in 1936. In those days, the big con was a dying art, until a first-class grifter. <laughs>